0: Again, Good morning. Thank you for being a part of the Hershey Free Church this morning. My name is George Davis. Some of you are new to our church. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. It's a heavy topic this morning, but it's one I think we need to address. So by God's grace, we can, we can talk about this together over the next few moments. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to the Old Testament book of Judges, Toward the front of the Bible, the Old Testament book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 19 in a moment. Judges chapter 19. A little over two years ago, uh, actress Elisa Milano tweeted these words If you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. That was in October of 2017, and in some ways, her, her tweet just seemed to light a match that fostered a conversation that's been ongoing in our culture in our country over the last two years, the Me Too movement. Now, I realize when I say Me Too, that generates all sorts of conversation and ideas. I also realize that once a movement becomes large, it can be politicized and weaponized for a variety of causes. But as we think about the last two years, as we think about the Me Too conversation, I think one of the things we need to see is that this conversation in our culture over the last two years has brought to the surface the reality that many of us have experienced abuse in different forms. That this is part of our life story. And the truth is, for some of you today, this is part of your story as well. In terms of statistics and numbers, the Center for Disease Control has endorsed these statistics that more than one in three women and almost one in four men will experience sexual violence at some point in their lifetime. Now, I remember the first time I read those statistics, it's like those are numbers that are just hard to fathom even for me just to start counting off in the rows here and start to do the math. But the reality is, as we talk about abuse, when we come to this topic of abuse, ultimately it's not about numbers, it's not about percentages. It's about people. And what they've gone through. Along those lines, uh, two individuals in our church uh, have given me permission to share with you part of their own story. So, one man in our church writes, and I quote, I was sexually abused between the ages of five and nine by a teenage female cousin, whom, to my understanding, was sexually abused herself. With this happening to me as a child, I did not fully understand how this abuse really impacted my life for decades to come. He continues. The reality of what happened appears in the person I had become due to the abuse. The abuse had a dramatic impact on how I approached relationships and my ability to maintain a healthy relationship. My first marriage ended in divorce for several reasons, but in the mix of it all, this factored heavily in the actions that were taken at the time. I remarried years later and have been married now for 18 years. The first 15 years of this marriage was a struggle again because of the abuse. A woman in our church writes, The controlling behavior was there before I married him and I called it love. When the name calling started, I told myself that I caused it. When I married him and he started hitting me, I realized that I had married a man just like my father. The screaming and yelling would always overrule any attempt at trying to resolve problems. As a result, a simmering anger grew over the years, ready to erupt at any time. I felt ashamed to tell anyone and kept it to myself for many years. Outsiders thought we had a great marriage, but what people couldn't see was the small crack in the facade that was ready to burst wide open. It was during a vacation that he threw me into a piece of furniture, and the hatred I felt was as ugly as the black and blue mark on my body. When I started having passive suicidal thoughts, I knew something would have to change. These aren't statistics or percentages. These are stories of real people. Real people who are, who are part of our church family, our church community. People we serve with, people we connect with, and the truth is they're not alone in our church community. This morning we are continuing um, this series that we have entitled The Struggle is Real. If you're new We've taken a few weeks to talk about some really hard things, challenging things that can be a part of our lives, and how we can engage them from the perspective of the gospel. And for some of us, when we talk about the reality of struggle and the challenges in our lives, that includes the issue of abuse in a variety of forms. Now, as we start to talk about this this morning, let me just take you back to a couple of observations I made right at the beginning of this series First, let me remind you that everyone struggles. And so if this is part of your story, you need to know you are not alone. If this is part of your story, you need to know you are not alone, even in this room right now, with other people who know what your story has been like. Secondly, the gospel meets us in our struggle. Therefore, you can have hope. And I realize for some of us, this is hard to hear. But part of the reason I'm sharing these two stories are these are two individuals that in the course of their life story would tell you how the good news of Jesus Christ has brought about hope and healing, even in the midst of this trauma. As one of them writes, my healing journey continues still today, but it is a glorious journey of healing, redemption, and forgiveness. So in light of the gospel, you have hope. You're not alone. You have hope. And finally, the gospel engages our struggle in the context of community. Therefore, you don't have to hide. And church, we want, to be a, we want to be a place where people don't have to hide. We want to be a place, a community where others can walk with you, whatever you have gone through or are going through. With that in mind, throughout this series, we've made this handout available in the bulletin you receive that talks about different resources. And let me remind you again that if you would like to, like to talk further or even pray with someone, that we would, we're going to have prayer, members of our prayer team available at the end of the service. But also, if you'd like to talk to someone on our staff, Omar Azuk is, is the point person. For our pastoral care ministries, and he would be glad to talk with you and help you to begin thinking what a healthy journey of healing might look like. And even if you're you're not sure you're ready to to take that step, just email him anonymously. We've had people do that. And just know we want to come alongside you. We don't want you to have to go through this alone. In a similar way, this is why right now our staff together is going through a 12-part curriculum on how we can become a church that responds well to those who were abused. We're going through this together as a staff because we really want this to be a place where you don't have to hide. We want it to be a place where you know you're not alone, a place where you know you have hope, a place where you don't have to hide. So with that in mind, let's now come to this this scene in the book of Judges. Now, let me just give you a little background if you're not familiar with the book of Judges. So this book takes place in the history of Israel. The the people, this this new fledgling nation has moved into this land that we sometimes refer to now as the land of Israel, the land of Palestine. And and they have moved into this land with such high hopes, right? These are the people of God. They're on God's mission. But once they get into the land, things don't go according to plan. And the book of Judges recounts a a time in the life of Israel before the nation actually had a more centralized government, before it had a king, a united monarchy. And as we read the description of this season in Israel's history, we discover that the nation seems to go through this repeated pattern. As I said, there were such high hopes when Israel moved into the land, but now those aren't materializing. And now that they've settled in, they're easily distracted. Easily distracted by all sorts of things, including foreign gods and deities. And so Israel in the book of Judges seems to hit this cycle over and over again. A cycle where they engage in sin and disobedience toward God and and God... Uh, brings in some level of of, of punishment often through foreign oppression and the people cry out to God we'll be better blah 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 and and then God provides a leader and in the book of Judges these people are called judges that doesn't mean they're a judge in the legal sense it's more like a military leader or a tribal leader and and you know the judge comes and there seems to be a season of peace and restoration and then once the quiet comes back we hit the cycle all over again but in the book of Judges, you need to understand it's not simply a repeating cycle, it's also a cycle that is spiraling downward. And this becomes very apparent by the time we get to the end of the book, as the author tells us several stories that are deeply horrific and deeply troubling, including the story of abuse and sexual assault in Judges 19. So now let us come to this text. Here's how the story is introduced to us. Notice Judges 19.1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now pay careful attention to this phrase. This phrase is repeated four times in the final section of Judges. Twice it is given further explanation. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in fact, it's with this phrase that the book ends. This is the moral framework with which the author is telling these stories. He's wanting us to see that this was was a troubling period in Israel's history. It's like he gets to the end of the book and he says, here's one more example of the moral disorder. One more example of what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. One more example of what it's like in this country because we have no king. There's, there's no one pulling us forward. So everyone is doing their own thing. And here's one of the results of what happens when everybody does his own thing. When everybody does his own thing, the people in power take advantage of those who don't have it and others get hurt. That always happens. And that's what's happening in the book of Judges. The the author of Ecclesiastes put it this way. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And they had no comforter. In so many ways, that was the period of the Judges. Now for us today, each of us, we're in different networks of relationships We're in schools, we're in workplaces, we're in communities, we're here at church, we're in families, we're in marriages. But understand, wherever you find these networks of people, where other people in some ways are related, there you also find power. And central to the experience of abuse is the misuse of power. The stories I just told you, one involved an extended family, one involved a marriage, yet there was the misuse of power. And one of the tragedies of abuse is this. It turns environments that should be life-giving, places that should be places of flourishing, like marriages and families, and it turns them into places of trauma and pain. So the author is telling us this is just one more story who people doing what's right in their own eyes and using their power for selfish purposes. And when this happened, people always get hurt. And I think, therefore, underlying, just right below the text of Judges is this question. Where can we find a king? Where can we find a king? Where can we find someone who uses power without abusing power? Where can we find someone who shows us what this looks like. So with that introduction, the story begins. And here's what we read as we continue in Judges 19. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So notice just a couple of details as the story starts. First, we start with a Levite, right? A religious leader, a man of some power, some level of authority and responsibility, And he has a concubine. That's not a term we use, but one way to think about being a concubine was this. It was basically the role of wife without all the legal privileges that should have come with being a wife. And notice it says that she was unfaithful to him. Now that's not unfaithful in the way you and I would typically use it. It doesn't mean that she cheated on him. What it means is she was unfaithful in the sense that for some reason she left him and she goes back home to her parents, And then four months later, the Levite, her husband, decides to go and seek to win her back, to persuade her. And therefore, we now see everybody right in in the house of mom and dad. And the story continues. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat. Then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. And then on the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave his father-in-law, the woman's father said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. So notice what happens. So the Levite, right, he comes to his in-law's place. He's going to win her back. And and day after day, the father-in-law said, no, just stay another night. No, no, refresh yourself. And, And finally, the Levite, we're done. So they head out, and as they head out toward the evening, they they need to find a place to stay and they 're coming near the ancient city of Jebus, which we now know as Jerusalem, but at the time it wasn 't an Israelite city, so we can 't stay there, those aren 't our people. So they find themselves in this community known as Gibeah, and they wait in the city center for someone to offer hospitality which would just have been culturally expected and finally an old man does and he he invites them to stay with him that night but once there the night turns ominous we are told that wicked men come to the house demanding to have sex with the old man's guest and the host refuses he even offers to send out his daughter for their pleasure. But they don't listen, and we pick up the story in verse 25. But the men who would not, would not listen to him, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up! Let's go! But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. It's hard to... It's just hard to fathom what she experienced that night. And when light finally breaks, she is lifeless at the threshold of the door. And here we see just the utter depth of the heartlessness of this Levite. Not only did he send her out, not only did he fail to protect her, he simply looks at her and says, Get up. And as it turns out, now he is angry. He's not angry because of what she has endured, he is angry because he has lost a wife. And this is where the story gets this is where the story gets even darker. Because here's what happens next. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them all into the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. So in a further act of humiliation, he cuts her up. And he sends her parts to the different tribes of Israel so that others can know how he had been wronged. And as it turns out, this act will lead to further conflict and the loss of life. It's a horrific story. Now to understand this story well, I think we need to slow down just a bit and and look at, at really the two key characters. First of all, just for a moment, look at this woman. And here's what I want you to notice as the author tells the story. Notice that as the author tells the story, the woman has no voice. We never hear from her. In fact, think about about how the scene unfolds, right? The Levite says, you know what? I'm going to go and persuade her. I'm going to win her back. Now, many of us, you know, at some point in our lives, we've had, we've had a conflict that we've had to work through. Some of us know this in marriage, you know, we altercation, and we've got to work through that. But the only way to work through it is what? We've got to talk. We've got to have a conversation. And what is explicitly missing from this text is that conversation. The woman has no voice. She is silent. And I think the author does this intentionally to give us a clue, to help us see that already there's something wrong going here. There's something deeply wrong in this relationship. And that is intensified, that interpretation is intensified by another lexical clue in the text. This is something, it's just hard to bring, it's hard to bring into English from the original Hebrew. But in the original Hebrew, when the author talks about, you know, the Levite's going to persuade her, it more literally says he's going to speak to her heart. And then later in the conversation, right, when the father-in-law keeps kind of pulling him back, no, stay a little longer, refresh yourself, in each of these statements... It actually says, refresh your heart, refresh your heart, refresh your heart. That theme heart occurs four times in this paragraph. And I think in actuality, what it suggests is the father-in-law already knew something's wrong here. This, This relationship has already gone south. There's already a problem here. So just stay a little longer with the hopes that somehow this Levite would actually speak to her heart but it never happens. So I think the author wants us to see, you know what, there's already a problem here. In some sense, the abuse is already taking place, even before we get to the assault in Gibeah. And what this text, I think, is encouraging us to see and understanding this story is that the problems in the scene are are more complex and complicated than we first realize. And personally, I find this challenging and helpful for this reason. Because it reminds me that the nature, the impact of abuse can be deeper and more multi-layered than we might first think. And particularly for those of us who haven't experienced this firsthand, we need to understand that. Earlier, I read to you part of the story of my friend who went through Sexual abuse. As he describes his story, he continues this way. The abuse caused a loss of identity, a loss of self so great that I struggled to have direction in life. Who am I and what do I want out of life? There was no direction. This loss of identity led to complete and total dissatisfaction with my life. He said, I was always dealing with thoughts of how could things be better if, if I had a different job, if I'd married someone different, if I had a different life. And I got to tell you, when I first read this, I just kind of, I just put it down and I go, wow. I didn't know. I, I didn't know that's what my friend had gone through. I didn't, I didn't realize how complicated this issue could be and the impact that it could have over decades it can be more intense and long-lasting than we initially realize. and I think in some sense we're given those same clues as we look at the woman in this story in addition to looking at this woman look at the Levite for a moment and if if you continue to read this story you will discover that he is very self-serving and manipulative. In in the next chapter, he recounts the scene of what happened, the attack to others, but he does it in a self-serving, manipulative way. And once again, I think this is helpful in understanding abuse because it challenges, challenges us to see how cunning, how manipulative those who abuse can be. Recently, in, in preparation for this series, I sat down with a group of mental health professionals in, in our church, and it was so helpful. We, we just had conversations about these different topics, and as we were talking about abuse, we, we, we moved to the topic of, of emotional abuse. And they just shared with me what, you know, what this could look like, what, could, what it could entail, and what people experience. They shared the fact that these can include relationships with lots of criticism, controlling behavior, name-calling, degrading comments, blame-shifting. Over time, these interactions can produce fear, depression, difficulty relating to others, perceptions that I deserve what I'm getting, and ultimately deep and lasting shame. And I think the Levite is a reminder of how cunning, and manipulative abusers can be. So we have this this story in the book of Judges. A story that is unsettling to read, this story that kind of brings to the surface the reality of abuse and what that looks like. And and Now let's just, just take a couple of minutes And just kind of see if we can turn the page for a moment. We've, we've talked, we've seen what this looks like in the book of Judges, and we've talked a little bit about what this can look like in our life experience. Let's see if we can get to the solution side of this problem. How, do we, how does the Bible help us think differently about this issue? How does the, the story of Christ equip us to move in a positive direction? How can we be on the positive side of this and not simply part of, this, of the problem? With that in mind, let me just just speak to several different groups. First of all, let me speak to us as a church. And I think as we look at this text, as we look at the pages of Scripture, there's a warning for us. And the warning is this. Don't assume. Don't assume that this could never happen here. Don't assume that. Interestingly, uh, you may remember, you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19? If we have time, I could point out to you that the the author of Judges tells this story in a way that in some ways echoes Genesis 19. And I think that's intentional. Because here's the deal. From, from From the perspective of the Israelites, when you thought about Sodom and Gomorrah, that was always the, you know, the wickedness, the evil associated with those people. That's what they did, right? We're not like those people. And the author of Judges tells this story in such a way that, that there are echoes of that scene in Genesis. And what I think he is doing among others is saying, hey, wait a minute, don't fool yourself. We can do the same things they did. That stuff can happen right here just like it happens out there. So it's a warning. Don't be deceived. Don't presume, well, you know what? This stuff never happens in good families. This stuff never happens in good communities. This stuff never happens in good churches. We need to be alert to that. This is, once again, part of the reason as a staff we're seeking to understand how to be a church that responds well to this because we can't assume that this won't be part of our experience. Secondly, to those of us who are leaders, and by that I mean leaders in any environment, in a workplace, in school, in your family, in your community, please understand that you have the responsibility to set the tone, the temperature in your context. Take that responsibility seriously. Otherwise, it is easy for power to be used in the wrong way? How do you stand up for those most vulnerable in your environment, whatever that looks like? Thirdly, to those who are perpetrators of abuse. Let me remind you that God loves you and God's grace is meant for you. But can I also challenge you to confess and to get help? Too often in our culture, the pattern of abuse in some ways reflects that pattern, that negative cycle of the book of Judges. Remember the cycle of, hey, do evil things, and then, you know, it kind of gets complicated, and so, oh, we kind of repent, and I'll be better, and we restore peace to some form, but before you know it, we're right back in the same cycle. If that's where you're at, understand you, you need help to get out of that cycle. We would be glad to walk with you, but you've got to take that first step. And finally, to those of you who have experienced this or are experiencing this, please know we as a church We grieve with you. Now in saying that, I can't pretend to know what you have gone through or what you are going through. We can't pretend, all of us, to have known what your situation has been like. But what we can do is walk with you and what we can do is stand with you at the foot of the cross. And if this has been your experience, I, just, I, just, I think there is something powerful about standing here with a recognition of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Something powerful, and it can be part of your journey of healing, to stand here and realize you are not alone. Because you may have not thought in these terms, but one of the dimensions to Christ's crucifixion was this. His crucifixion was an act of sexual humiliation. Now I know for most of us, when we see pictures, portrayals of Jesus on the cross, he's usually wearing a lawn cloth. But most likely that was not the case. The standard Roman practice for crucifixion was to remove all clothing before anyone was nailed to a cross. And most likely that happened to Jesus. Because you need to see for the Romans, crucifixion wasn't simply a matter of execution, it was also a matter of humiliation and shame. So if this this is part of your life story, in a real sense, I invite you to stand before the cross. I invite you to recognize you're not alone. I invite you to hear Jesus looking at you and saying, me too. Likewise, if this is part of your story, let me remind you that what you have experienced is the abuse of power, the misuse of power. And that brings us back to that question, where can we find someone who will use power well? And once again, that brings us to Jesus. Jesus, the one who taught his disciples this way in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus was preparing his disciples for the cross. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what was about to happen. But in doing that, he has said, I have come to use power, but I have come to use power in a radically different way. I have come to use it to serve. And if this this is part of your story, I invite you to see Jesus as the one who does use power differently. I invite you to see that through his death and resurrection, he comes with a power that brings forgiveness, that brings healing, that brings restoration. He comes with a power that will give you your voice back. Even among the stories I read earlier, the woman who had gone through that marriage In recounting her story, talked about the the value of counseling and what that journey had looked like and the friends that had been a part of that journey. But then she said this, the ultimate healer was and is Jesus Christ who gave me true joy and a purpose in life. Likewise, my friend who was abused as a child said he he's reached a point over the last several years where in the course of, of working with others and counseling, he would been challenged to understand his identity in Jesus Christ. In essence, he'd been challenged to stand here in front of the cross, and it was it was through that journey of beginning to understand his identity in Christ that he said there the cracks begin to open in the lies that I had believed. The cracks began to open in the shame and lies that had held me bondage, and God's light began to shine through. And that can be your story as well. So, know this if abuse is a part of your story, we hear you, we want to walk with you. You don't have to go through this alone. you read the story of Jesus in the pages of the Gospels, in a variety of ways, in different scenes, in different moments, we see Jesus moving to the margins of society. We see Jesus moving to the lives of the people that were often overlooked on the margins, the people that were the victims of power and oppression. And we see Jesus engaging them with these words. Come to me, those of you who are burdened and weighed down, and I will give you rest. I think that's the invitation for those of you who have experienced this, of Jesus to you. The invitation that in the context of this relationship with him, you can find a new direction. You can find healing. You can find growth. You can find rest. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we've come to this text, it's, it's a troubling passage of Scripture. It's not easy to read. But Father, even as this text isn't easy to read, there are also some of us for whom... Parts of our life carry the same sorts of trouble and weightiness, and parts of our lives are difficult to share as well. And so, Father, I pray for those of uh, those of us who are here that this is part of our story. I pray that we would see that we're not alone. I pray that we would understand that we can have hope through the work of Jesus Christ, and therefore we don't have to hide. I pray that we would understand that there are others who desire to walk this journey with us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.